be green. Ah, there we go. Is that better? Thanks, Darren. There are reasons why John and Alex are the pastors here and Dave and I are not. Um, <clears throat> and only, only, only some of it deals with age and only some of it deals with technology. A lot of it. A lot of it. Yes, thank you. Um, before I read the New Testament scriptures this morning, I'd like to take a little bit of a, a, a walk back um, in Covenant Church history um, to kind of set the stage. Some of you here, though probably not many, um, might remember, well, you, would re you might remember Paul and Marina Briggs um, who were here just a couple of years ago. Um, they're missionaries that, that we have supported for a long, long time at this church. Um, they are missionaries um, to West Africa um, among the Loran people. The, the tribal group Loran of the Loran language live primarily in the Ivory Coast, or Cote d'Ivoire, and in Burkina Faso. When Paul and Marina went there in the mid-1980s, when they were just a couple of young pups, um, as Dave and I were back in those days as well, um, there was no written language for the Loran people, which would make it very, very difficult to try to share the gospel when it, had to, when it was purely conveyed verbally. So, Paul set out to create a written language for these people. Paul is a trained Christian linguist, and he wrote, he's the only person to ever have created a written language for the Loran people, which took him quite a few years living in the tribe, immersed in their culture. And following that, the written language, he and Marina taught the people there to read, and then they began the translation of the Gospels into the Laurent language so these people could know the love of Christ. And to date, I just was texting with Paul just this past week in preparation for the sermon, and Paul tells me that they have translated 18 complete books of the New Testament into the Laurent language. The book of Genesis is completely translated into the Laurent language. And most of five or six other Old Testament books, a lot of the Psalms and Proverbs and some of the other have also been translated into the Laurent language. The Christian church, which was not anywhere in amongst the Laurent people 35 years ago, has many churches, many members, and many indigenous Laurent pastors and Bible teachers. God's work in the Ivory Coast and Burkina Faso among the Laurent people has just been phenomenal. And the way he's used 
Paul and Marina Briggs in spite of Muslim incursions and guerrilla warfare and intervention of French Marines and, and American Marines. It's amazing the work that God has done among those people. Now, the reason I bring all this up is because, you know, um, I'm going to tell a story on Paul. And, and I figured if I was going to tell something that could be somewhat embarrassing for Paul, I should at least give him the credit that he's due for the wonderful Christian work that they've been working through uh, in the last 35 years. Now, I've got to take these off so I can see what I'm doing. As a number of folks in our church here who are primarily Spanish speakers know, just because you speak the same language as someone else, if you come from another country, you might have very different traditions. You may have very different ways of celebrating. You may have very different holidays you celebrate. You may have very different cultural expectations. And the fact that you speak the same language doesn't really matter a lot. And we found that when Paul and Marina Briggs came to the United States from Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom, we found that those kind of differences exist among speakers of the English language as well. So, to set up my story about Paul Briggs, let's think about hospitality a bit. What is it to be hospitable? What is it to show hospitality? Well, hospitality is something that everyone expects. But we sometimes have different ideas of what hospitality is. In some culture groups, if you go to a meal with someone at their home, it's expected that if you like the meal, you will completely clear your plate. You will leave nothing left on your plate, and that will show the host or hostess how much you've appreciated that lovely dinner. In other cultures, just the opposite is the case. If you don't leave something on the plate when you have finished the meal, it's a bit of an insult. Because the expectation of what it is to be hospitable is different. In the 1980s, in the early 1980s, Paul and Marina were in the United States, right in this area, studying um, to be missionaries. And they attended our church here, and everyone was very warm and friendly towards them, and we wanted to be hospitable. And on one occasion, one of the families of our church invited the missions committee and the Briggs family to dinner. They didn't live too far from here, just, just over, um, was that, I guess it was off of uh, 910. And the meal was wonderful. And everyone had a, a very nice time, very relaxing time. The, the, the wife of the family, the, the, the hostess was named Tina, and she was just a wonderful woman. Very gracious, very welcoming, not a bad cook. It was, it was a nice evening all the way around. And as Paul and Marina were leaving, Paul thought that it would be appropriate to thank her. 
And as he was going out the door, he turned to Tina and said, he doesn't know when he's met such a wonderful, homely Christian woman. Homely. In English, American English, if you tell some woman she's homely, you've said she's a little bit less than attractive. We kind of like when my teenage buddies and I, back in the day, would say something like, you're ugly, but your mother dresses you funny. That was homely. And Paul told his hostess of that lovely, wonderful, relaxing evening that she was homely. You see, to someone who spoke the Queen's English, British English, the English of the United Kingdom where Paul and Marina were from, homely was a term that meant warm and inviting. Someone who was particularly hospitable. Paul meant to compliment her greatly. But the word he used meant something different to people who spoke American English. You see, culture quite often dictates what is appropriate, what is hospitable. And now that we're going to think a little bit about hospitality and how it can be received or not received, I want to go into our scripture for the day. This is the, um, the seventh chapter of the book of Luke, verses 36 to 50, following right after what John preached on the last two weeks. This is the continuation through chapter 7 of, of Luke, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went, this is speaking of Jesus, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's home, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he thought to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, 
the one, I suppose, to whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss me, to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As Pastor John ended the sermon last week with, chapter, with verse 35, we heard Jesus say these words, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And we understand what he meant by that, that as John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine, it was appropriate for John's ministry. So also, Jesus the Son of Man, came eating and drinking and was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet that, too, was appropriate for his ministry. Those present with Jesus and his disciples had just heard John the Baptist's disciples when they brought John's doubts to Jesus. John was doubting, if you recall, John was doubting if Jesus truly was the Messiah. And the Lord recounted to them, the blind received sight, the lame walked, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. You see, there really is no doubt as to what's been happening in this region around the towns of Capernaum and Nain. These miracles have been occurring everywhere Jesus went at the command of his word. At this point, Simon, a Pharisee, who has been following along in the crowd, decides he's going to invite Jesus to dinner. Now, I want to think before we get into this any further... As I was preparing the sermon, I came to the realization that for me, lots of times when we read these accounts in the Gospels, sometimes I take these just as stories of Jesus. And I know I shouldn't use the phrase just as stories of Jesus, but that's, that isn't truly the way sometimes 
it comes across in my mind. Because we know these stories so well. I think we all tend towards this. We remember the story of how Jesus raised the centurion's servant. John preached on that two weeks ago. We've heard the story of Jesus healing the blind and the deaf. Lame were made to walk. The lepers are cleansed. These are great stories. But we can't let God's Word, we cannot let God's Word be mere stories from a couple of millennia ago. The people in these stories, they lived. And they lived after their healings. These weren't just stories to the first century believers. These were their friends. These were their neighbors. Imagine for just a moment the shock you would receive if you were gassing up at the get-go over on Route 19. And your neighbor's brother, who you knew had been laying at death's door in the hospital the day before, were to pull up to the pump next to you, get out of his minivan, fill up the tank, jog across the parking lot into the little mini mart, pick up a donut and a cup of coffee and come back out to the pump to get into his car. And as he's getting in, he turns to you and says, praise God. I was in the ICU at Passivant yesterday, and Jesus came by and raised me up out of my bed and sent me on my way. Imagine what that would be like. That's what these people lived with. It wasn't just a story to them. It was their neighbor. It was their friend, their acquaintance, the person they saw in the market every day who was dead and was walking down the street talking to them, who had been a leper and was cleansed, who had been blind from birth and was reading to them. This was real. For the people of that time, these weren't rumors. These weren't just stories. They knew the reality of Jesus. And that truth did not escape the purview of the Pharisees. Simon knew very well what had been happening. Now, we think back to the hospitality. What was hospitable back in those days? What was expected of a host in a Palestinian home in that first century? Simon invited Jesus to dinner. A guest would be expected to be given an opportunity to wash the dust off of his feet, off of his sandals. It was common courtesy to provide the guest with some oil for their hair. When rabbis met, they greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek. 
Yet when Jesus went to dine with Simon, he received none of that hospitality. Now, it's not too hard to understand Simon's actions. Though Simon knew who Jesus was, and he even referred to him as teacher, which in the Aramaic is Rabboni, rabbi, he recognized who and what he was. He wasn't. Jesus wasn't what Simon wanted, nor what Simon expected in a Messiah. You see, Simon saw Jesus, understood what Jesus had been doing, but to put it in terms that I might use myself or some of us might use today, his response was, yeah, but. See, Pero. John and Alex have really great seminary Educations and they got all kinds of really neat terminology and, and words that I don't even know. I'm just a teacher. But one of the things that I learned when I was teaching was a term that all my students wanted to use, and that term was, yeah, but. Now, if I would be in front of a classroom teaching a, a history lesson or an English lesson and trying to make a point, trying to assert some fact or, or some premise that was irrefutable, sure shoot, and I'd have some kid raise his hand and start off with, yeah, but. Sometimes the kids would do that because it was a Friday afternoon and they were trying to get me off the track and kill the last 15 minutes of class. Sometimes it worked. But one thing it wasn't, it wasn't them saying, yeah, as in they agree with me. It wasn't an affirmation of my point. It was usually trying to refute my point because the student knew more than I did on that subject. Yeah, but some of those were really special occasions. It got to the point where next to my American flag in the classroom, you know, you'd stand there in Pledge of Allegiance every day, routine. I had a sign hanging that they couldn't miss every day. They had to see it. And it said, no yeah buts or what ifs. Now, I'm not going to worry about what ifs today. But I didn't want to hear anything out of those kids starting with yeah but. Because yeah but means I'm discounting everything you just said. Now, why am I going back and talking about my day's teaching? Because, you see, Simon was demonstrating a yeah-but attitude in his, in his hospitality. Simon knew that the blind were seeing. Yeah, but. The deaf were hearing. Yeah, but. The sick were healed. Yeah, but. Dead people were raised, yeah, but. 
He knew who Jesus was. He knew what he'd been doing. But because of his bias, because Jesus demonstrated authority totally overshadowing the pseudo-authority of the Pharisees, because Jesus' teachings and the behavior of his disciples totally contradicted the legalistic righteousness or self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and because Jesus wasn't the kind of Messiah that the Pharisees wanted, Simon would not and did not show Jesus the common courtesy, the common hospitality of that day. Now, let's think about Mary. Mary, on the other hand, went far beyond what was expected of the host of the meal, and she wasn't even on the guest list. She had no invitation, but she followed her Lord. She washed his feet with her tears and her hair. She anointed his feet with expensive perfume. Why? Simon did nothing. Why is this woman who wasn't even invited doing these things? Well, you see, Mary, who some folks think it was Mary Magdalene, others think it might have been Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who we read about later on in, in the Gospels. Mary not only knew who Jesus was, Mary knew who she was too. Mary wasn't deluding herself with her righteousness. Mary knew that she lived a life of sin. She knew her sin and she recognized the God of her salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. She wept. Unlike the Pharisees, she wept. She recognized her sinful life, her sinful lifestyle. She worshiped the one who could forgive her those sins. Mary saw what Jesus had been doing. She understood the words he spoke and recognized her need for those words. Her Messiah had come, and Mary's life was changed forever. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Simon, seeking to justify his own actions, his own self-righteousness, attempted to condemn Jesus, if only within his own mind, thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him for, <laughs> she's a sinner. Jesus didn't let Simon get away with it. He didn't let him get away with deluding himself. He knew Simon's sinful thoughts, and he called him on it. Now, what's the takeaway from this? Consider how often you and I, as believers in Mary's Messiah, 
behave more like Simon, demonstrating, yeah, but hospitality to Jesus in our lives. As I was reflecting on this, these thoughts came to mind. They're all too familiar to me. See if they are to you. I know the sins that constantly tempt me. Yeah, but they're not that bad, right? And God will forgive me anyways, huh? I know what I ought to do in this situation to show the love of Christ. Yeah, but no one expects me to, right? This one's hard. This one's really, truly is one I struggle with. I'd really like to share the gospel with my friend. Yeah, but I don't want to offend them or, or, or seem pushy. And for anybody who may be here today who might still be considering placing their faith in Jesus, who may not have made that commitment yet, see if any of these sound familiar. I would really like to know more about Jesus. Yeah, but if I ask the pastor questions, he's going to start pestering me. I want to believe and know my salvation is secure. Yeah, but it seems like if I believe, then God is going to expect me to give up control of my life. And I like being in charge. Right? I'll pray to God and go to worship while I need this help. Yeah, but... Once everything's okay again, I can start sleeping in on Sunday mornings. That one even gets Christians. Not that they all can't. Sunday morning sleep-ins are quite a temptation sometimes. We have to be careful not to be yeah, but and inhospitable to welcoming Jesus and the Spirit into our lives. No matter how you try it, no matter how you couch it, yeah, but cannot and does not justify my sin, nor your sin. Yeah, but doesn't cut it. If I'm not doing what the Lord wants me to do, or if I'm doing something the Lord does not want me to do, yeah, but doesn't cut it. How many times do you find yourself like those kids in my class raising your hand before the Lord and saying, yeah, but I find it all too frequently myself. The only yeah, but that is acceptable to a follower of Jesus is when you're tempted to sin 
when you're tempted to behave as that self-righteous Pharisee, and your response is, yeah, but Christ died for me. Let's pray. Holy God, we confess that often we are yeah, but people. We confess, Lord God, that many times out of convenience, out of comfort, out of laziness, we rebel against you with yeah, but. We ask, Lord, that you would make us a people who seek to honor you, to welcome you into our lives, to extend that hospitality that you deserve. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.